You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. There's plenty of oil. What there isn't room is for the emissions. If we're being honest, the solar industry doesn't need the oil and gas industry to be involved to be a success. For January 10th, 2024, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. The agreement passed at the COP28 climate conference in December said, for the first time, that the world must transition away from fossil fuels. Since much of the world is already transitioning away from coal, the implication of that message was clearly that the oil and gas industry must also prepare to be phased out. Despite the successful efforts of oil and gas producers at the conference to eliminate such plain language from the agreement. We'll hear more about that and the industry's response in the next episode. Today, we're going to look at some of the foundational work that informed that agreement. Four recent reports from the International Energy Agency, or IEA. Originally founded as a defensive move by the developed economies of the OECD in response to the 1973 Arab oil embargo, the IEA has since transformed into an agency that provides essential guidance to the entire world about the full spectrum of the global energy system, including the trajectory of the energy transition. Their reports provide some of the best analytical work available about the world's progress, or lack thereof, against the national decarbonization targets set out by each country, and it plainly sets out exactly what must be done in order to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial temperatures. To conclude my three months of travels in the autumn of 2023, during which time I researched episodes 212 and 213, I spent several weeks in Paris. During that time, I had the privilege of presenting to the IEA staff at their offices and getting to know a few of them over dinner and drinks. I also got to sit down with Tim Gould, the co-head of the IEA's World Energy Outlook Reports, who you'll remember from episodes 148 and 177, and Christophe McLeod, the head of the IEA's Energy Supply Unit, who you'll remember from episode 166, for the discussion that you'll hear today. In this 90-minute conversation, we focus primarily on the IEA's outlook for oil and gas. We draw upon some of the key findings from their annual World Energy Outlook report issued in October, their monthly report on the oil market from November, their updated Net Zero Roadmap issued in September, and their new report launched in November titled The Oil and Gas Industry in Net Zero Transitions. We explore how the energy transition is cutting into demand for oil and gas, how much further consumption of those fuels must shrink to meet our climate goals, what the implications are for oil and gas producers, and how they should start preparing to either pivot to working on the solutions of the energy transition portfolio or prepare for their own obsolescence. It's a deep, detailed, and data-rich discussion that I think you'll not find anywhere else, and I'm very pleased to bring it to you today. Then in the news segment, we'll see how OPEC responded to the IEA's latest report. We'll note an interesting new twist for Toyota. We'll find out how battery storage is competing with gas power plants. We'll check out a massive new wind and solar plant underway in China. And we'll get a welcome update on the ongoing saga of the HB6 corruption scandal in Ohio. But before we go to the interview, announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers. Brailsford and Dunlavey is an architecture and planning firm based in Washington, D.C. And Catalyst Cooperative cleans, compiles, analyzes, and organizes public energy data to make it available to people working in the energy transition. We're so pleased to have them on board. 
And now, our conversation with Tim Gould and Christophe McGlade, recorded at the IEA's offices in Paris on November 27th, 2023. So let's bring them into the conversation now. Welcome back, Tim and Christophe, to the Energy Transition Show. Great to see you, Chris. Thanks Great to much. see you in person, I have to say. <laughs> Indeed. Good to see you guys here in person, right at the heart of the IEA. Fantastic. All right, well, let's start with some of the key findings from your World Energy Outlook 2023 report, often referred to by its acronym, the WIO, released in October. We're only going to be able to touch on a small portion of it, as it's over 300 pages long and has a great deal of information in it, but I do want to draw out a few key findings that I think will be of interest to our listeners. First, there's a new section in this WIO titled, New Context for the World Energy Outlook, where you reflect on how the disruptions of the COVID pandemic and the global energy crisis brought on by Russia's invasion of Ukraine have changed the global context of the energy system and resulted in an acceleration of the energy transition. So can you summarize that new context for our listeners? Well, certainly, Chris. There's a few elements that we highlight. And one of them, I mean, you've referred to is the more fractured geopolitical context after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also given the instability that we currently see in the Middle East. Now, those difficult geopolitics, they don't necessarily disadvantage clean energy. Far from it. In many cases, they've led to an acceleration in deployment because people see an energy security benefit also in moving into the clean energy economy. But they do mean that many policymakers are viewing events in the energy sector more through an energy security lens than they perhaps did a few years ago. And we're very conscious of that here at the IEA since we're at the heart of the global discussions on energy security and of rapid secure transitions. I think an, a separate issue, but which has its links to the first one, is the rise not just of energy and climate-related policies, but also of industrial strategies relative to clean energy. So many countries around the world are searching for footholds in the new clean energy economy because they see that's a big source of growth in employment and in economic value. And so that's an increasingly important driver for change in the energy sector as well. I think a third element of the context is we're in a different macro environment from where we were. So whereas prior to the COVID pandemic, we were in an era of relatively cheap money. That's no longer the case. Borrowing costs are higher, and that does make life more difficult for people putting forward new clean energy projects to a degree. And I think the fourth element of the context that we have to have in mind is we are continuing to accumulate emissions in the atmosphere. So everyone is much more conscious, increasingly conscious of the damaging effect that has and the extreme weather events that we're seeing around the world. It really is a very different world than it was just three years ago, isn't it? It is. And I think that has moved clean energy transitions even more towards the center of the agenda for dealing with both the environmental risks, but also energy security risks and economic risks in some cases that we face. And accordingly, IEA has to keep up with that. You've got to be able to pivot and follow the world where it's changing as well. So that's one of the things that we try and do is because we have an annual cycle of updating our scenarios and then, of course, all the other analysis that comes out of here. And we have new market data, new data on technology cost as well. That all feeds through into the updates and revisions that we make on an annual basis to our scenarios. 
Right. Okay. So in this WIO, you have three scenarios, the net zero emissions by 2050 or NZE scenario, which is what it says, the announced pledges scenario or APS, which assumes that governments deliver on their climate pledges in full and on time, and the stated policy scenarios or steps, which reflect what governments are actually doing sector by sector, regardless of their announced pledges. Now, I don't want to delve too deeply into these scenarios today, but I did want to just highlight how you see the various sources of energy performing in them. We're going to go deep on your outlook for fossil fuels later in this discussion, but let's just take a few minutes here to look at electricity generation. And the first thing that jumps out at me is that in all three of your scenarios, solar becomes the most dominant form of energy by far, followed by wind. The shares differ in the three scenarios, but in the net zero scenario, wind and solar get to a combined 40% share of total generation in 2030. In all of the scenarios, nuclear power basically holds on to its current share of generation, which means it expands a bit along with the total system size. Hydropower doesn't grow much, and bioenergy, including liquid, solid, and gaseous forms, grows but remains a pretty negligible part of the overall energy system. So if I had to sum it all up, I think I would say that wind and solar become the most dominant fuels in the global energy system, while fossil fuels are headed for a long goodbye, and the other fuels don't contribute much more than they do today. Do you think that's a fair summation? So I think I'd certainly agree that wind and solar are central to the change that we're seeing in power systems worldwide. And electricity is becoming more and more central to the whole energy system. And I think across the scenarios that we produce here at the IEA, I think those two things hold true whichever scenario that you're looking at. Obviously, the speed varies. But solar and wind really dominate the power capacity additions in any future outlook. I think where we have to be a little bit careful is on the sort of what the rest of the system does. Because as listeners would know from all of your discussions, I mean, this is an energy system that has some pretty complex interactions and you need to make sure the infrastructure is in place. You need to make sure you have the necessary operating flexibility in power systems. So it's all of those ancillary measures that allow for those big, big picture changes to take place. I mean, we recently released some work on grids, and it highlighted that grid availability is becoming an increasingly important constraint on our ability to scale up solar and wind quickly enough. And there's 1,500 gigawatts of new renewable projects that are in advanced stages of development and that which are waiting for a transmission connection. That's a big missing opportunity there to accelerate the pace of change faster than we're seeing already. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big number. So as you think through how these power sources evolve, do you ever get hung up worrying about things like, well, if we had that much wind and solar on the system, is there going to be enough storage capacity in addition to the transmission issue you just mentioned and that sort of thing? Or is that something you explicitly model or do you basically assume that it's going to happen as that new generation capacity gets built out? So I think that's one of the areas where we've upgraded our ability to look at this considerably over the past 10 years or so, because when you start adding large quantities of wind and solar into the system, you need a different set of modeling capabilities. Mm. You need a much greater time resolution in your ability to understand how those integration processes work for, exactly. for power systems. So we've moved to early modeling. We consider in detail what it would take to ensure that you keep system reliability even as you're adding in all of these new technologies. And that requires 
a mix of technologies, robust grids, work on the demand side to have greater flexibility, but also some of those low emissions sources of dispatchable capacity, some of which you mentioned already. They may only be a relatively small part of the overall picture, but when they're needed, they're really needed to keep the system running well. Right. Well, it's good to know that you upgraded your modeling capability to take that stuff into account, because I don't think everybody really understands that the IEA does that. <laughs> we produced quite a lot of analysis looking at how we think that through. Yeah. And one of the things I would highlight that we produced last year for the Japan G7 presidency was something that made the distinction between very near-term flexibility needs, where you have one suite of technologies that's going to play a big role, and batteries are clearly going to be very important in that space. But then also some of the other things that happen when you have big seasonal variations in electricity demand, because there, those technologies that provide your short-term flexibility are not going to be able to provide the same service. So you need a different suite of technologies there. And that's where gases stay in the system for longer. But that's also where there's a whole host of innovation trying to think through how those kinds of variability is going to be satisfied in future. Yeah, great. And perhaps if I could just add on the yeah, please. on the modeling side, because we have made quite a number of changes in the past few years on our modeling. Some of your listeners will remember that we used to have a completely separate modeling framework in the IEA. We used to have the Energy Technology Perspectives model. Right, the ETP, yeah. The ETP, and we had the World Energy Outlook model. Right. And they were two separate models. Okay. Those are now combined. Ah. So as part of the net zero roadmap we did in 2021, a lot of the work that went into creating that roadmap was getting those two models to be completely merged. Mm. And the reasons for doing that was, as Tim was just saying, is because they both have different strengths and they can both capture different aspects. And to reach net zero, you require all of these new technologies, new aspects that one of the models might not have been doing particularly well. If we pick hydrogen, for example, the World Energy Outlook, which had always focused much more on policies today and the, the shorter term, didn't have as much focus on hydrogen as the energy technology perspectives model did Yeah, because it was looking at 2050, 2060 and beyond. So by combining those two models, you could kind of get the strengths of both. So we now have hydrogen, for example, whether that's hydrogen from renewables, whether it's hydrogen from coal with CCS, from natural gas with CCS, from nuclear, for whatever the, the source might be, we have all those different options captured in the modeling. And then you can find out using the different models what the best prospect is in different parts of the world. So you wouldn't just say that hydrogen from renewables is going to be the best solution everywhere. There might be different answers to different parts of the world, the Middle East, the cheapest costs are going to vary between different countries. You'll have some with very large natural gas resources. They could probably produce low emissions hydrogen from that very cheaply. Mm. Others are very sunny and they could produce it from that. So having that geographic representation and having the detailed technology modeling is what you need if you're going to model properly the evolution of the system that's required. Absolutely, as well as getting your temporal resolution down to hourly, as Tim was just saying, which is also a great innovation. Remind me again when these models were combined. So this was done just before we released the 2021 Net Zero Roadmap. Oh, okay. So it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Okay, cool. All right, well, an interesting point that I found deep in Chapter 4 on the energy transitions is the note that, quote, energy efficiency in the building sector stands out as in particular need of higher investment. In the NZE scenario, it requires a six-fold increase in spending by 2030 in China and a 23-fold rise in other emerging market and developing economies. And as you point out, that if we could put up new buildings that meet high-performance standards for heating and cooling, it would relieve pressure on the energy supply and limit emissions, and I would add, make achieving a successful energy transition a lot easier. 
But you also point out that relatively few developing economies other than India have even put energy efficiency building codes in place. And that's not even beginning to address the need to retrofit our existing leaky building stock, especially in the U.S. and across the older building stock in Europe. I mention this because it's become a pet focus in my work recently. Providing heat accounts for about half of global final energy consumption, as the IEA's work pointed out. And as your work has also pointed out, heat is the largest end use of energy, contributing fully 40% of global CO2 emissions. And most of that heat is used in buildings. Heating and cooling buildings consumes 30% of global final energy. It accounts for about half of the energy demand in buildings, and it produces 26% of global energy-related emissions because fossil fuels still meet over 60% of heating energy demand. Since heat is humanity's largest end use of energy, it seems to me that if you wanted to address our energy and climate problems, you'd probably start there. And yet, we don't. As you say, we don't even have proper building codes for new buildings, and nobody seems to have a plan for retrofitting leaky building stock. So my question to you is, how can we elevate this point and focus the attention of policymakers on the demand side to reduce the heat energy we waste instead of just relying on things like heat pumps to make the supply side more efficient? That's a really great point, and it's something that we certainly try not to lose sight on here at DIEA because there's a big focus on efficiency policies working also with emerging developing economies as well as with DIEA member countries on how to implement those quickly and cost-effectively. And I think where you have some of the easiest opportunities is at the construction phase. It is very worrying from an IEA perspective that fully half of the new houses being built today around the world are not built with any regard to energy efficiency standard. And that's just storing up problems for down the road. And so there's a very big focus there on making policymakers aware of the multiple benefits that they can get from those kinds of actions. And we can point to some examples also from, from other parts of the world. I mean, a new house today in the European Union uses less than half the energy to heat it than one did 30 years ago. So this can really deliver. Mm. And that then reduces the cost of all the other changes that you want to make in the system. I mean, it means that when you do switch to electrified heating, you don't need anything like as powerful a a heat pump in order to provide the same degree of thermal comfort. Exactly. So that's an extremely important point that we need to keep on hammering home. Yeah, I mean, every time we put up a house that lacks a proper efficiency standard, we're essentially baking in for decades excessive energy demand. Yes, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, by and large, most of the increase in urban population that we have in our scenarios coming um, going forward is in sort of temperate climates, relatively warm climates. So that heating issue is not as big as the cooling issue. But there too, you know, you can make a big difference in your cooling requirements by thinking it through in advance and making sure these are built into new building designs. How does IEA model its expectations for improving building efficiency stock? Is there, is that a formal element to the modeling or is it more exogenous? So in the stated policy scenario where we look at today's policy settings, we really go through country by country and see what sort of standards are in place and also look at the institutional capacity to implement them. Mm. And that would then feed through into the projections that we have in those scenarios. So in the other scenario frameworks that we have, it's much more about what do you need to have in order to deliver certain 
outcomes, right. whether that's national energy and climate policies or a global 1.5 degree stabilization. Right. And there, you need to push very hard on pretty much all the levers you can find, including the demand side ones. Yeah. And that's why we're emphasizing so strongly in the run-up to COP the the need for a commitment to a doubling in the pace of global energy efficiency improvement. Okay. Although our deployment of clean energy is accelerating and exceeding the forecasts of years past, the energy transition is still not moving quickly enough to meet our climate goals. And you're quite clear about what's needed to achieve those goals, more investment in clean energy solutions. And in the NZE scenario, investments in clean energy have to nearly double in China and more than double in advanced economies by 2030. Investment in energy efficiency also has to double by 2030. What the report doesn't say, at least that I spotted, is that there are any serious technical impediments or material limits to achieving the net zero scenario. So I'm tempted to distill this huge report and all of its voluminous detail down to this. If the world can roughly double investment in the portfolio of energy transition solutions, we can get to net zero by 2050. Put another way, insufficient investment, which I think we can reasonably view as a proxy for insufficient political will, is really the only thing keeping us from a successful energy transition and being on the path to limiting warming to somewhere in the range of 1.5 to 2 degrees C. Is that fair? I think it's fair to some extent. I wouldn't necessarily characterize this as saying insufficient investment is the same as insufficient political will. Okay. Because there is absolutely a central role for governments. Governments have to take the lead in an awful lot of areas here. And the big difference between our three scenarios is what governments do. However, we shouldn't just say that no one else needs to do anything or there's no other role. Companies have a huge amount of agency here. Sure. Financial actors have a huge amount of agency here. Individual consumers also. And it's going to take everyone working together if we are to actually achieve these objectives, particularly the 1.5 trajectory. So yes, the governments have to set the tone, they have to set the regulations, they have to set all of the policies, but that doesn't mean everyone else can just sit back. They have to be pushing for the outcomes that they want. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have been highlighting recently in some of our publications is the agency that companies have. They can get the conditions right for them. And that's where they might have commercial advantages today, or it might be where they see commercial advantages in the future. Mm. They can push governments to put in place of policies, but they don't necessarily have to wait for governments to actually do that. Themselves. Yeah, that's a good point. They could go ahead of that. So absolutely, we need to see that huge increase in investment and particularly clean energy investment. But it's not all just about governments. Yeah, okay. The other thing I would want to just to highlight is that the doubling is very, very important. There's sometimes been a perception that what we need to do is shift investment from fossil fuels into investment into clean. And that's all that's required if we want to achieve some of our climate targets. What we see from the numbers is that's not the case. This is really about increasing in overall absolute terms the amount of investment going into energy. Mm. Today, we don't have enough money going into energy if we are to achieve that 1.5. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Just moments before we sat down to record today's interview, the IEA received a sharp retort from OPEC in response to its Oil and Gas Industry in Net Zero Transitions report. The oil producer cartel accused the IEA of vilifying the oil and gas industry for saying that the fossil fuel industry was contributing to the climate crisis and was facing a moment of truth where producers had to choose between exacerbating the climate crisis or shifting to clean energy. OPEC went on to recite its usual talking points on energy security, energy access, and energy affordability, while the group's top oil exporter, Saudi Arabia, said that the IEA's call to stop new oil and gas investments would jeopardize energy security. OPEC also objected to the IEA's characterization of CCUS as an illusion and insisted flatly that further production of its products would be necessary on the path to decarbonization. All entirely predictable responses from OPEC, demonstrating that the group has no actual plan to address the threat of climate change and seeks only to maintain its business. Item 2. According to Reuters interviews with more than a dozen power plant developers, project finance backers, analysts, and consultants, utility-scale battery systems are increasingly price competitive with gas-fired power plants. The shift challenges assumptions about long-term gas demand. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.